Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. We're going to talk about poverty today. First with Princeton sociologist Matthew Desmond, the author of Evicted, who has a new book out, Poverty by America, that pushes us to think more broadly about who the poor are in our nation. Then Mona Hanna-Atisha, the advocate who brought the Flint water crisis to international attention, will join to talk about a new anti-poverty program for children that she's heading up in Flint. That's next on Detroit Today. But first, the news from NPR. Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, your host, and I'm really glad you've decided to join us. There's a pretty fundamental idea in this country around the concept that if you work hard and get educated, well, you'll be successful. Lots of people believe in this and work at it every day. There is this notion, very American, that if you put in enough time, energy, and effort to the thing you're trying to accomplish, well, you'll achieve it. But that broad idea hides many other truths about life in this country. Over the last 50 years in particular, inequality has grown as our economy has changed to favor those at the top far more and as costs for things like education and healthcare and housing have skyrocketed, yanking away from folks at the bottom of the economic ladder the opportunities to move up. The nation's fundamental inequalities gathered around the racism that has been baked into the system from the jump is a constant aggravator of those economic trends. And this toxic brew has left America, which is the richest country in the world, with an awful lot of people who live in poverty. In fact, recent data tell us that about 5% of Americans live in what's called deep poverty, which means they make only $13,000 annually for a family of four. According to Princeton sociologist Matthew Desmond, an author of a new book titled Poverty by America, these numbers don't even tell us the full story of poverty in our country. But there are many people who aren't necessarily counted as poor, but are still really struggling to get by. And that's because poverty is about more than just numbers. It's a lived struggle, a cognitive terror similar to not getting enough sleep. It's the loss of liberty for so many poor folks who are incarcerated in jails and prisons. And of course, poverty is also embarrassing. Many consider it a sin or a disease, as if it can be caught like an infection. 
Why do we still have so much poverty in America? What's causing it? Especially as our federal government spends more and more on anti-poverty programs. And what do we need to do in order to end poverty in America? Or at least end the deep intergenerational poverty that has taken hold of so much of our country. That's where we begin the conversation today. And we've got Matthew Desmond here with us. I want to say before I introduce him that uh, he has been a guest on the show before, several years ago, after his first book, Evicted, came out. He was the featured author in our summer book club here on WDET. So, Matthew, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thanks, Stephen. It's great to be back. Yeah. So I, I want to start here. Uh, you lost your home as a child uh, growing up in Arizona. I, I want to have you talk just a little about that experience and how it, uh, how it shaped your understanding of poverty and hardship in America early on. We did. You know, I grew up in a home that didn't have a lot of money. We often got our gas shut off. And when I was in college, uh, we lost our home to foreclosure after my parents declared bankruptcy. And I experienced that shock, uh, like a lot of folks who were struggling, experienced their own shocks with embarrassment. I, I blame my parents. I blame my family. It was a it was a personal narrative for me. And I think that getting older and becoming a sociologist, part of my job is to kind of turn personal problems into political ones, to quote C. Wright Mills, to say, look, you know, yeah, you, you guys win something through something, but you're not the only ones. And there's a bigger game afoot other than individual decisions. And so... I think that, you know, seeing how my family was pressed and stretched by our poverty really drove this question about why inside of me, why all this suffering amidst all this abundance. And as I said in the open, I think one of the really powerful points you're making in this new book is that the numbers we use to quantify the problems that we have with poverty in, in America in some ways really obscure the reality uh, of what it what it looks like and what it feels like and what the effect of it is uh, on people's lives. Um, I want to talk just a little about um, what you make of the way we measure poverty in in this country and how we might have a different line or barometer for defining it. We measure poverty as an income level. You know, if you fall below a certain income, you're considered poor. But that's not even close to scratching the surface. You know, there's plenty of poverty above the poverty line, so to speak. One in three of us live in households bringing in $55,000 or less. Now, many of those families are considered poor, but what else do you call trying to raise two, three kids, you know, in Ann Arbor or Milwaukee or Chicago on 55K or less? You call it struggling. And I think that poverty isn't just the lack of income. It's this constellation of problems. It's eviction on top of homelessness, on top of depression, on top of you can't go to the dentist, so you just let the tooth rot, on top of get roughed up by the police, on and on it goes. So it's not a line, right? It's this kind of tight knot of social humiliations and problems. And I think that that means that millions and millions of us are denied security and safety and dignity 
in a land of dollars. And I think that this is a situation we don't have to tolerate. So in your first book, Evicted, uh, you explored the way that eviction operates, both how landlords operate and what losing your home does to people. Uh, I wonder if you can talk just a little about the relationship between the things you learned in Milwaukee, which was the setting for for that book, and this new book uh, about more more general poverty. What's the link there? I think the link was I saw a kind of poverty in Milwaukee that I had never seen before and never experienced before. You know, I saw grandmas living without heat in the winter in, a, in mobile home parks, you know, piled under blankets and praying that the space heaters didn't go out. Um, I saw kids evicted on a routine basis. You know, uh, every time I went to eviction court, there were just tons and tons of kids running around. And I think seeing that level of poverty, that level of, of this hard bottom of deprivation really motivated me to kind of present a story about why there is so much poverty in the richest country on the planet. Hmm. Um, I, I want to talk about the spending that we do on anti-poverty programs and what you make of it. But but I also want to couch that in uh, some of the things that people are saying about uh, poverty you argue in the book that poverty has stagnated over time, but there are a lot of people who are saying it's going down and that it has gone down with regards to absolute poverty. Um, people are talking about uh, expanded tax credits and uh, Medicaid, Social Security, all, all kinds of things that they say are making this problem less of a problem uh, than it was in the past. Um, uh, talk about anti-poverty programs and whether you agree that they are they are helping to solve this problem. Anti-poverty programs are essential. They are effective. There is a mountain of evidence showing that programs like Medicaid, unemployment insurance, food stamps, housing assistance, these are lifesavers to millions and millions of families. I've been with people when they've received housing vouchers after years and years on the waiting list, and they you know they often drop to their knees and pray, mm. you know, because they know it's life changing. And the evidence has their back. So we have to protect and deepen our investments in programs that work. And we also have to face the fact that those programs aren't enough. And, you know, measuring poverty is hard. We got to confront that question with a lot of humility. But even if you use certain measures of poverty that account for increases of government aid, you see that poverty has been very stubborn over the decades. You know, there's a measure called the Supplemental Poverty Measure that does account for different kind of government programs, but it also accounts for cost of living and rising healthcare costs. You know, 50 years ago in 1973, that measure said we had 15.1% poverty in America. 40 years later, it was 15.5, not a lot of action. And if you look at just hardship measures, like what's happening with evictions since 2000? up 22%. Mm. What's happening with the share of families visiting food pantries to, to feed their kids? Up 19% since 2000. Uh, number of homeless school kids up 74% since the Great Recession. These are pretty troubling signs in America. And so I think this is the paradox we have to kind of lead into if we want to abolish poverty. Government programs work, they're essential, and yet poverty persists. And the reason they it does is some of the fundamentals of American society are breaking down. We haven't addressed exploitation, especially in the housing market and the labor markets. Hmm. 
We're talking with uh, Matthew Desmond. He is a sociology professor at Princeton University, uh, is author of the widely acclaimed and Pulitzer Prize winning book, Evicted. Uh, he's got a new book out uh, titled Poverty by America. It takes a look at uh, what the experience of poverty is really like for people uh, who struggle with it uh, also pushes us to think more broadly about what poverty is, how we define it uh, as a way of really thinking more broadly about how we eliminate it. What kinds of things do we need to do differently to make sure that there is more opportunity uh, and less poverty? We'd love to hear from you during the conversation as well. Call and tell us if you've had an experience with poverty, what that has been like, uh, what is it like day to day, uh, what is it like over time, uh, what do you think we should be doing to address poverty and reduce or eliminate it? Why do you think America has so much poverty, given that is uh, that it is the richest nation on the planet? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can include you in the conversation that way. Um, uh, Matthew, I want to talk about some of the spe- specific experiences of, of poverty that you outline uh, in, in the book. Um, tell the story of uh, Julio Paez. Uh, what poverty, what did poverty look and feel like for him? Julio was a young man who was working two jobs when I met him. He would clock in at McDonald's and work the midnight shift, going from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. They did have two hours of rest and shower, and then he went to Aerotech, was a, a temp service, and went anywhere with that they sent him from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. And then he rested as much as he could, and then it was back to McDonald's. Each job paid minimum wage. But Julio told me, like, look, I, I got to work this much to afford the apartment for my mom and my brother. And he didn't have a life, right? He was either working or sleeping. And one day, his little brother, Alexander, who was eight at the time, went up to Julio and was like, you know, I'm saving my money. And Julio was like, why? And he's like, well, how much for an hour to play with me? I'm saving an hour to buy an hour of your time, you know? And when Julio heard that, he he wept. And not long after um, that happened, he collapsed in the aisle of a grocery store from just sheer exhaustion. He was 24 years old. Mm. Mm. So what do we, you know, what do we steal from folks like Julio uh, when we keep wages low? We we steal their life and their health and their family. Uh, th- that. Uh, that human cost is, of course, a theme that that go, comes up over and over uh, in the in the book. Uh, it, it's really tough, of course, to be to be poor. Um, but you talk about something called the bandwidth tax, uh, the type of cognitive load that being poor um, it means for so many to have to, to deal with. Uh, explain more about what you mean by that term, bandwidth tax. The bandwidth tax comes from a, a, a pile of social, psychological, and behavioral economic research. Um, and it's summarized in a beautiful book called Scarcity, which is a book about how poverty taxes the mind. And the bandwidth tax is something that I think a lot of us can relate to. We've all been in situations that are emergency-like situations, you know, where 
we're in the hospital waiting room. We can't think about anything other than that person on the operating table, or we're, we're late to work. You know, we slept in and we're racing to a job interview, something like that. When we're in those situations, we tend not to be our best selves. You know, um, that situation captures the mind. It gives us literally less space to think. And a lot of research has shown that's what poverty's like. You know, when you are facing down eviction or your lights are going to get shut off or your kids getting bullied at school or has to be held back a grade or your neighborhood just isn't safe or, you know, you're, you're getting sexually harassed at work. On and on that goes. The experience of poverty taxes the mind. And it's really unjust, I think, for those of us that are perched much further above the economic ladder than, than poverty to kind of demand a kind of, you know, superhuman uh, activity and thinking that can only come when that bandwidth tax is relaxed, you know, when we have some slack in our life. Mm. So I think thinking about the bandwidth tax is thinking about like the experiences of poverty. And for those of us that are not poor, really trying to put ourselves in the shoes of those who are. Yeah. Uh, in the book, uh, you talk also about this relentless piling on of problems uh, through the story of Crystal. Uh, tell our listeners uh, about about her struggles. Crystal was a woman I met when I did my last book, Evicted, in Milwaukee. When we met, she was 18, and you know she was born on a cold spring day when her mom was stabbed uh, in the back and the attack induced labor. And that, that start for Crystal's life kind of came to characterize her life, you know. Um, her parents were in a domestic violence relationship. At five, she was placed in foster care. She bounced around foster homes. Uh, she lived with her aunt for five years. Then her aunt returned her. And the longest she lived after that was, I think, eight months. You know, when she was 16, she dropped out of high school. Um, when she was 18, she aged out of foster care. And... Um, she had collected an assault charge for fighting with group girls in the group home, so she couldn't get housing assistance. And so she got her first apartment in a really poor neighborhood, but it still took 73% of her income. She soon got evicted. And she's just 18, right? I'm telling you all this stuff. <laughs> Before and she's, just, she's, she, she's just a kid, yeah. really, still. Wow. And so I think that, you know, uh, I think that looking really hard at Crystal's life not only helps us feel the weight of poverty, but I hope should spur us to moral action. You know, poverty isn't just uh, a necessary part of post-industrial capitalism. It should be seen as abomination, something that we want to abolish. So uh, I, I want to talk a little about why poverty persists in our country and and just kind of throw out some, some theories. I mean, uh, one way of thinking of it is because the the pain of poverty is one of the points of capitalism that the system the economic system that we have needs to have uh, people who uh, occupy this space of lack of opportunity and disinvestment and in some ways uh, culturally uh, we want there to be some people who are poor um, the I guess another theory is that we believe that using our resources to try to help people get to different spaces will just be a, a, a drain on the system and create a dependency uh, for them. Um, I, I wonder what you make of why we continue to struggle with this and why we can't make decisions uh, that would that would create 
better opportunities that would alleviate some of these things uh, that you detail so so wonderfully in the book. When you read the early capitalists, they they think that this system is going to abolish poverty in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, they they you know John Stuart Mill famously said, you know, if this if this causes widespread deprivation, I, I'm going to be a communist. You know, this was a champion of free markets. The capitalism we have in America, it's unique. It's a uniquely low-road capitalism. And you can go to capitalist countries uh, overseas and you can see a lot less poverty than we have here. So there's nothing inherent about capitalism that demands or requires all this poverty and the kind of desperate, hard poverty that we tolerate in America. And you can see this with other capitalist countries that just make deeper investments in their people. And speaking of uh, welfare dependence and that those deeper investments, you know, if you look at the data, there's very little evidence of welfare dependency, actually. And there's been very little evidence for a long, long time. What there is evidence of is welfare avoidance. You know, folks not getting connected to programs that they they really need and that, that are designed for them. You know, most elderly Americans who qualify for food stamps don't don't take them, don't use them. Uh, one in five workers who qualify for the earned income tax credit, which is this once a year bump for our poorest paid workers, mm-hmm. they don't take that, you know, and on and on it goes. And, you know, by my calculation, you know, we're leaving over $140 billion every year in unused aid uh, because, you know, families aren't getting connected to these programs. This is not a picture of welfare dependency, right? This is a picture of us doing a terrible job of of getting that that aid out the door. So, Stephen, why is there so much poverty, right? And my answer is because of a lot of us benefit from it. A lot of us benefit from it. You know, some lives are made small so that others may grow. And I, you know, I quote this line in the book by Tommy Orns, the novelist, where he writes, you know, it's like these kids are jumping out of the windows of burning buildings, falling to their deaths. And we think that the problem is that they're jumping. Hmm. Not that the building is on fire. Right. So this is a book about the fire. You know, this is a book about who said it and who's warming their hands by it. Yeah. Okay. Matthew Desmond, uh, professor of sociology at Princeton University and author of the book Poverty by America. It was really great to have you back here with us on Detroit Today. Thanks so much for joining and congratulations on the book. Thank you, Stephen. It's always an honor to speak with you. When we come back, we are going to continue talking about poverty. I'm going to shift the focus just a little bit and talk with Mona Hanna Atisha. She is a pediatrician at Michigan State University, known for bringing attention to the Flint water crisis. Uh, she is going to talk to us about a new anti-poverty program that's taking place in Flint that she is heading up. We also want to continue to hear from you on the phones and on social. 313-577-1019 is the number. Call and tell us about your experiences with poverty. Tell us about your ideas to solve poverty. What kinds of things do you think we could be doing that we seem unable or unwilling to do? You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and you can be part of the program that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET is your connection to what's happening in Detroit. WDET is your place for open dialogue about the issues that impact you. Stay in the know. This is WDET FM, Detroit's NPR station.
today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad you've decided to join us. It costs an average of more than $200,000 to raise a child, according to a 2015 Consumer Report. It's all to say that raising babies is no easy feat. Medical bills, child care, new clothes for a growing child, all of it adds up pretty quickly. But what happens if you don't have enough? In our earlier segment today, we explored poverty's far-reaching impact uh, with Matthew Desmond, who is a Princeton sociology professor. Unfortunately, this is also a reality for many people here in the state of Michigan. In Flint, around 50% of children live in poverty, according to the 2020 census. Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha, who is a renowned, renowned pediatrician and whistleblower during the Flint water crisis, observed the overwhelming effects of people of poverty on people's health up close when treating children at Flint's Hurley Children's Hospital. Recently, Dr. Hanna-Atisha, along with her colleague Luke Schaefer, a University of Michigan professor and director of Poverty Solutions there, created Rx Kids, an initiative beginning in 2024 for many Flint residents. In this program, Flint parents are going to be receiving a cash allowance of $1,500 plus $500 a month for the first year of their child's life. Imagine that if for the first year of a child's life, there's $500 a month coming in just to help. There are lots of ideas about universal basic income and the kinds of ongoing support that would either greatly reduce or eliminate poverty in our nation. Here's one that is unfolding right here in Michigan. We've got with us today Dr. Hannah Atisha and Luke Schaefer to talk about this new program and what it will mean for families in Flint. Dr. Hannah Atisha, welcome back to Detroit Today. Stephen, it is always lovely to be with you. Yes, great to have you here. And uh, Professor Luke Schaefer, welcome back to Detroit Today. Stephen, thanks so much for having us. Yeah. So, Mona, I'm going to start with you. Tell us about RX Kids, what the program is, how it came about, and who's going to qualify for this? Yes, I'm so excited to tell you about RX Kids. It is a first in the nation effort to eliminate infant poverty. Um, you know, we know increasingly what it means to be born into and to grow up in poverty. We know it does what it does to developing brains and to really the life course of children. Um, for so long as a pediatrician, I've wished for the ability to prescribe away poverty, to like to prescribe an antidote to to poverty. And and that hasn't been possible. I, I, you know, I think for many of us we thought like, oh, we can't we can't fix poverty. Like there's a lot of problems out there. Like th this is a really hard one to fix. And and I'm tired of band-aiding. So much of what we do in, in healthcare, so much of what we do in society is really band-aiding um, the consequences of not preventing and, and you know, poverty. Um, so Rx Kids is this crazy, big, huge, never been done before effort 
um, to tackle this. We are going to prescribe, like you said, every pregnant mom in Flint an unconditional cash allowance during mid-pregnancy. And then during that first year of life, every baby is going to get a $500 unconditional monthly cash allowance. Like you said, Flint is it's the poorest city in our state. Mm -hmm. um, our child poverty rate is three times state and national averages. Um, and when you look at the youngest kids, um, and especially in that perinatal period, that's when poverty spikes. So right before a baby's born, mom loses income. They often kind of drops out of the work workforce. Babies are expensive, like you said. Um, you know, our childcare costs are sky high. Parental leave policies are lacking. So the period that families are most poor is actually this kind of prenatal infancy period, which is maddening for me as a pediatrician, because that is the most important time period in a child's development. Your brain actually doubles in size in that first year. So the intervention is, we'd like to do, I mean, we wish we could do this like most countries for all of childhood, mm -hmm. but we are narrowing this intervention to this prenatal infancy period and everybody in Flint qualifies. And that's what makes this different than any other pilot out there. This is a citywide intervention to eliminate poverty. So, Mona, you and I have talked about uh, the Flint water crisis and its effect on children in Flint in particular several times. I wonder uh -huh. if you can talk just a little about how a program like this, had it been in place before the Flint water yeah. crisis, might have made things look different. And I, I want to say up front, I am not at all suggesting uh, that the, 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 the things that happened uh, with the water supply in Flint would, would, would have been okay under any circumstances. Uh, but would they have had a different kind of effect yeah. if poverty yeah. weren't, weren't gripping so many of the kids in that city? Yeah, I, I think it would have changed things in two ways. The first is Flint's water crisis is a story of poverty. Because the city was so poor, because we had uh, lost a tax base, because the revenues had decreased, that was one of the reasons we were taken over mm -hmm. by financial emergency managers. So our poor city contributed to our loss of democracy, which resulted in the water switch and, and the, the crisis that happened. So that's a, a part of it. This would have buffered that poverty. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other way I think it, I, I wish we would have had this intervention in place is when you have um, a nutrient rich environment for young children, when you have um, the bandwidth to care for your kids, when you have adequate food to put on the table, when you have enrichments for children, like high quality childcare and books and all these supports, all of those things can mitigate adversity. Um, so, you know, if a kid in Flint is exposed to lead, it's different than a kid in a more affluent community where they have those nutrient-rich resources already in place. So if this intervention was in place, families would have been able to more adequately buffer the impact of the crisis with good nutrition and supports and all these other things. It still was terrible. It doesn't mean you right. know, it would have prevented this crisis. Um, but I think you know, something that we learned from the water crisis is that we failed at prevention. As a society, we failed to protect kids. So, so much of what we have been doing in our recovery is, is taking a step back, not thinking about 
what can you know how do we build more resilient children like no it's not like you know i i tell my families every day in clinic like read more to your kids and sign up for this program and, and sign up for the flint registry and and this home visiting program and all these great things these awesome things we have put into place in flint but but this program rx kids is about taking a step back and and asking ourselves as a society like how do we do better to to build a resilient community so that kids and families can can do what they want to do which is be great parents and raise children um so this has shifted kind of that that locus of of focus on, mm -hmm. on on how we you know fundamentally care for each other um and that is a consequence of of the water crisis but really the consequence of of a nation that doesn't do a good job caring for their children yeah yeah. Uh, Luke Schaefer of Poverty Solutions at the University of Michigan. I want to bring you into the conversation here and talk about uh, your collaboration in this in this project. Uh, in your organization, of course, uh, you see lots of different ways that poverty affects people, not just here in Michigan, but, but all over the country. But I want to give you a chance to talk about why a program like this, in your mind, makes so much sense? Uh, why this kind of program, cash transfers specifically, uh, are, are a way to alleviate poverty? And I guess what you think the outcomes will will look like from uh, from what you're doing in Flint? Yeah, so Poverty Solutions tries to look across uh, so many different dimensions, housing, workforce, health, um, income to really tackle poverty in partnership with communities. But that means we're always looking for the evidence and looking for the things that work. And so I have been studying and thinking about child benefits um, for many years now. Uh, it is you know, the type of program that uh, Mona is proposing in Flint. It's, it's been tried all over the world. And country after country, when they adopt exactly this type of cash transfer saying, you know, raising kids is expensive and society has a reason to come alongside parents in that work. Child poverty plummets. Canada, the UK, um, Australia, Germany, uh, all across these places, you see it over and over again. And I was a part of efforts uh, to bring a program like this to the United States. And uh, with many, many legislative champions, uh, that was made possible for one year in 2021 with the expanded child tax credit. And you know what we saw again? Child poverty plummeted. Millions of kids lifted out of poverty. Food hardship among families with kids fell to the lowest we've ever recorded. Mm. The fraction of families with kids reporting they could you know, handle a $400 expense. It hit its all-time high. Credit scores went up. I mean, this is the evidence-based policy of evidence-based policies. And I want to be clear that uh, it's different from UBI. It's in the same family as like basic income. Mm -hmm. But basic income, we're still trying to figure out how would that work out in society when we're bringing everybody in. And this is a great time for thinking about that and experimentation. Child benefits like this, child allowances, they've been tried over and over again. Mm -hmm. And we see child poverty fall. We see food hardship fall. We see kids and families being less stressed and doing better. So the child uh, tax credit was not extended, and I was thinking about ways to keep this type of policy in the public imagination. Uh, we've been talking a lot about uh, the incredible impacts, 
Um, so when Mona reached out, I couldn't have been more excited. You know, I think this is um, such an incredibly powerful program that uh, isn't just about cash. It's about sending a message that uh, this is the way that we should care for one another. It's never been tried at a community level. There are all these pilots out there that, you know, pick a few winners, uh, you know, 100 or, or 200 people in a community. And that's a big part of what attracted to me to this as well, because I think we can study the economic development impacts mm -hmm. of, you know, an extra $9 million flowing through the Flint economy every year. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's an incredible opportunity. I think it's, it's built on this foundation of evidence. Um, and it's a chance for the city of Flint and the state of Michigan to be a leader in saying how we should be caring for our kids. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, uh, we're going to continue this conversation with Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha of uh, the Michigan State University and uh, with Luke Schaefer of University of Michigan and Poverty Solutions uh, to talk more about uh, RX Kids, which is this new program to provide a cash allowance of $1,500 plus $500 a month for the first year of a child's life for every parent in Flint. Uh, we want to get going with you on the phones and on social. Give us a call. Let us know what you think of this effort to eliminate or at least alleviate child poverty in Flint. Uh, we were talking earlier with Matthew Desmond, the sociologist from Princeton University about his new book, Poverty by America, uh, the ways in which we ought to be thinking about who is poor and how we alleviate that poverty. We'd love to hear from you about your experiences with poverty, uh, what your ideas are for making more opportunity and less misery for people who live in poverty. 313-577-1019 is the number here. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 1019. WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and thanks for joining. Imagine if every person who was going to welcome a new child into their lives got $1,500 plus $500 a month for the first year of that child's life. That is what's going to happen beginning in 2024 in Flint, Michigan, the site several years ago of the Flint water crisis, uh, a new program called RX Kids is going to provide $1,500 cash allowance to families uh, plus $500 a month for the first year of their children's lives. We're talking with the architects of that program, Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha, a pediatrician at Michigan State University. She is known, of course, for bringing attention to the Flint water crisis. Uh, also with us is Luke Schaefer. He's a University of Michigan policy professor and the director of policy or of poverty solutions there at the university. Uh, we want to hear from you on the phones and on social as well. 313-577-1019 is the number, and you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today to be part of the program. Uh, before we get to listeners, though, uh, I, I want to talk a little about the money 
that will sustain this program, how much it costs to do something like this, and how we make sure it's something that continues, that we don't just start and then see fade away. Uh, lots of people who are critical of programs like this point to the cost and sustainability as reasons for their doubt. Uh, Mona, uh, talk mm -hmm. to me about, about money here and, and how it all is going to work. Yeah, that's a great question. And that's where we're actively um, working to raise money. Uh, so we have received a generous, incredible grant from the CS Mott Foundation, which is based in, in Flint, Michigan. Um, and it's a $15 million grant, which is, um, wow, amazing, <laughs> um, unheard of. Yes. Um, um, their board um, unanimously and enthusiastically supported this effort, and they said it's the fastest grant that's ever left their door. Uh, and I think that really kind of speaks to their commitment and uh, to the boldness of, of this idea and the, the potential outcomes. So that grant is a matching grant. Uh, it's a challenge grant. So we have to raise um, another $15 million to unlock those dollars, and that's what we have been actively working to do. Um, yesterday, the Michigan Health Endowment Fund um, joined our family of funders uh, with the Community Foundation of Greater Flint has joined the Hurley Foundation. We have been talking to um, foundations across the country who are interested um, in, in this really novel work. Um, and we're trying to also leverage support from, from government. Um, we, we want a whole village um, of, of folks to, to, to be behind this work. Um, so we are, are working with the state, we are working with city government to try to also leverage additional resources. And that is where we see the opportunity for sustainability and scalability. Everything that we have done in Flint has not been about Flint. Everything that we have been doing is about really shining a spotlight on on how we can help very similar kids and communities all across this country who who don't have the same opportunity as other kids, yeah. um, be it from the Infrastructure Act, which is replacing lead pipes across the country, to our you know fruit and vegetable prescription program, which is, has been part of the U.S. Farm Bill. Every you know we have this track record of translating practice into policy to help once again kids and communities everywhere. Um, so even before this program is starting, we are trying to figure out how to make this a national program. And maybe I can have kind of Luke jump in here um, mm -hmm. as, as this policy expert, especially kind of with, with the child tax credit and, and different opportunities of, of how we can make this um, nationwide. Yeah, so um, the part of the building of this towards that first year of life and even before the first year of life, um, you know, builds on this evidence that so much that goes on with kids is really shaped in those, you know, at the very beginning. And so that means that it is a possibility of something that we can do that is uh, cheaper, right, as a, as a nation. So uh, if you just put a few numbers into context, we spend about $450 billion on Medicaid every year. Uh, that's an efficient program. It's an incredibly important program. Um, to do the child tax credit uh, and to make uh, child poverty plummet to the lowest level ever, that would be, uh, to, to keep that program would be about a quarter of that cost, about $100 billion. So I, I think that's a pretty good deal. Um, but to, to do this, right, to sort of surgically focus, especially for families who are on Medicaid. So if we think about the 40% of kids that are born with Medicaid coverage, 
to do this for the entire nation. So I give you $450 billion for Medicaid, $100 billion for the child tax credit. This would cost something like $12 billion a year mm. to have this uh, safety net for, you know, 40% of all of our kids. So even if we did it for every kid, right, we're still talking about a tiny fraction of the cost. And you can think about all the incredible positive impacts uh, over time. Uh, you know, we have new studies that show an extra $1,000 in that first year of life uh, impacts people's earnings in their 30s, right, decades later. So the, the potential for impact is just incredible. And there are lots of different funding streams that we can think of where states might be able to adopt us for other cities. Uh, so maybe it starts in Flint, but we would love, love, love for it to come to Detroit. Um, or Benton Harbor or uh, parts of rural Michigan that are really struggling. Or maybe it could be adopted uh, by a, an entire state. And so this is really about showing a model. I think a model uh, that is, you know, financially a really great deal for states and the nation uh, to really support families in that critical first year of life. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, 313 1019 is the number here on the phones. Let's go to Judy in Detroit. Judy, welcome to the show. Oh, my goodness. Hello. Hi. Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear yeah, you. Yeah, no, I, uh, thank you for having me on the program. I just I don't really need to make a question, but a comment that I think that a lot of people tend to equate democracy with capitalism, and the two are totally different. Yes, we have the freedom to move forward and what is best for us. Honestly, I believe in a Star Trek world, and I you know this is never going to happen <laughs> anytime soon mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, because we need to deal with the problems that are here now. But I would love it if our world governments could come together and just say everybody who is born has a right to live, has a right to uh, health has a right to all the good things that we're talking about. And then uh, we just go ahead with whatever education can provide us, and we do the best that we can with what we've been provided, yeah. as opposed to everyone striking for, uh, if you're wealthier, you get this. If you're not wealthy, you get not this, and you get yeah. it overlooked, and politicians, and so forth and so on. And it's just a comment, and I'm going to let it go from there. <laughs> yeah, Judy, I, go on. <laughs> I, I love that you called and, and, and made th- that point. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, uh, Mona, we have yeah. talked before about, yeah. you know, there are ways to think about um, these kinds of efforts as investment in human capital yeah uh, as yes. opposed to mm-hmm. monetary capital and yes. look right we we don't have enough time on this show to debate the merits of, of capitalism versus other economic <laughs> systems but i think we can uh-huh. agree that that there are different ways to think about yes. that capitalism yep yes um Judy's comment was awesome. I'm a Star Trek kid, and I want my my kids <laughs> that I care for to live long and prosper, right? Yeah, right. But 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 they they can't. My patient, I, you know, kids I care for in Flint, they literally live less. There is a 20 year difference in life expectancy between a kid I care for and a kid in another part of the county, and that's not okay. And and it is programs like this that will hopefully address 
our ability for every kid to have opportunity and prosperity independent of their environment and the situation that they were born into. Um, so that's what excites me about this because it is investing in that human capital. And, and Judy mentioned democracy. And I, I want to add something about this project. And, and Stephen, I think you will love this. So we think that this community citywide effort is actually going to build democracy. Um, we think that it will improve trust in a community that has severely lost trust in institutions and government. And we're actually going to measure things like trust and civic engagement and civic participation and, and voting because of this intervention. We think it will build community and work to restore democracy and faith in institutions and government. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Luke, the, 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 the examples that we have from other places and other places around the world, really, uh, do suggest that this kind of investment pays off in a way that maybe looks different than your stock portfolio, but um, but but there is a return on this investment. I think that's an important an important yeah. point. That's right. I mean, you know, we sometimes feel like we have no idea what to do, right? Uh, or we get lost in how difficult our challenges are. This is something that has worked over and over and over again in countries all over the world, and it worked right here in the United States. This is something that we can do. This is something that can bring us hope and joy, and it's it's about the money, but it is also about the message. It is a different way for caring for families. Instead of saying, you're poor, you don't know how to care um, for your family, we're going to give you some money, or we're going to require you to do this or that, this says, we're coming alongside you. We're here with you. We're going to make other things available, but this is really about just supporting you in the work. And that message, I think, has this power to really uh, change narratives. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, Dr. Mona, Hannah, Atisha, and Luke Schaefer, great to have both of you here uh, to talk about RX Kids. Uh, you say you want to start in 2024. That's that's pretty soon. Uh, yes. The, the building the infrastructure for this seems like it would be pretty daunting too, right? Well, uh, well uh, we're working with an international partner called Give Directly, and they are the administrator. We're not reinventing wheels. They do this across the world and across the nation. Mm -hmm. So uh, we have a leg up here. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, congratulations on the grant to get this started. And we will, of course, be following closely to see what change this makes uh, in, in the you. city of Flint. Thanks uh, again for Thank being you. here. Yeah. Thank you, Stephen. Okay. Uh, that is going to do it for us this week. Come back on Monday when we will have more great programming for you here on Detroit Today. Also, remember, if you listen to this show and enjoy it and get something out of it, you ought to be sharing it, sharing it with your friends or your neighbors or your family or whomever uh, as a way of inviting more people into this community. The discussions we have here are so dependent on you, the listeners, and your participation not only through the phones and social, uh, but the other ways that we interact. And we want more people to get more out of this to, by, by being a part of it. So uh, share the show around. You can do that really easily at uh, WDET.org or on our Detroit Today podcast, which you can find wherever you get your podcasts. This is 101.9 WDET-FM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, 
and conversation. Detroit Today is produced by Sam Corian and Nick Austin. Technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevethan. And Detroit Today's music is created by Sam Bobian and Will Sessions. We'll talk again on Monday.